Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Aaron Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast. My podcast about immigrants, immigration, and everything in between. Another week, another new episode of an Immigrant's Life. Thank you for joining me once again. You know where to find me on Instagram, Facebook, at an Immigrant's Life. You can listen to the podcast through YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you to all the subscribers. And if you are new here, welcome. And if you'd like to join our community, please go ahead and click that subscribe button. It's a minimal thing for you, and it means a lot to me. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, I'd appreciate if you can drop a five-star rating and a short and sweet review. You're helping the podcast tremendously. Now, let's talk about the episode. A guest this week lived with a smuggler for two months, together with her two siblings when she was only 15 years old. They did that as it's the only way for them to join their mother in the United States. Through the experience and more, she learned how important and powerful telling our own personal stories can be. I think I've said enough. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Our guest today is a bibliophile, a blogger, and a real-life superhero because she's a teacher. Everyone, please welcome Astrid Emily Francis. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hi. Thank you for coming on. It's an honor to have you. It's an honor to be invited and be able to have the platform and the opportunity to share my story. Awesome. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So, yes, I'm Astrid Emily Francis. I am a teacher, a high school teacher. I teach English as a second language. This is my 10th year as an ESL teacher. And before that, I was a teacher assistant for eight years. So this is my 18th year here um, in the school district, the same district. And I love what I do. I love working with newcomers, students who had just come to the United States from many different places from around the world. And I do like to go around the country sharing my immigrant journey. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So we have so much to talk about. But as always, let's start from the beginning. Where were you from originally? I was born in Guatemala. So Guatemala is a teeny tiny country is right below Mexico. So I mean, everybody knows where Mexico is. So it's just right below it. You can't miss it. I lived there for 15 years. To be honest, I didn't know where Guatemala is. <laughs> I knew the country, but I didn't <laughs> but know where it can, is. But everyone can find Mexico, right? Just like, yeah. you know. It, so I Googled right. it. I said, oh, it's there. <laughs> like, it's just right there. It's so tiny, yeah. Tiny, but a lot of population. And that's why it's such a poor country. Because it's, you know, they live on what they grow on, in, on land and you know, whatever they can do. It's not a country where everyone has the opportunity to be educated and have a professional career. It's just you, you work really hard to at least survive. Yeah, that's right. So you said you stayed there, you lived there till you were 15. How was your childhood in Guatemala? You know, what I remember... I mean, I had my struggles, I had battles because, you know, we didn't own anything. So we really had to work at the market selling oranges and just making do. 
But at the same time, it, it was, I had siblings, younger siblings, and it was fun. You know, you will go to the rivers and jump in the water and you'll go around the neighborhoods, knocking on doors and bugging neighbors. You know, <laughs> we used to play tag with my friends outside. And, you know, I had some very sweet memories about living in Guatemala, but, you know, there's that balance of having that childhood, but at the same time, the struggle of not having enough to eat, hmm. not having running water, having to take care of, uh, you know, four younger siblings, having to manage school and having to work at the market at the same time. And I had to cook and, you know, all of that is just a mixture of things that I had to do for 15 years. Mm -hmm, for sure. You said uh, taking care of your siblings, where's your mom and dad? Well, my, I only grew up with my mother. My dad was out of the picture from since I was born. And so my mother was a single mom with five children. So after I was born, four more came along. And it was just us and her. And there was really no other family. We knew of other family who lived around, but they were never really part of the picture. So it was just really my mother and her dad who um, lived about seven years of my life, because when I was seven, he, he disappeared, he died, he passed away, something okay. happened to him. What, he was the only other family that I can remember. What do you mean disappeared? Like he did he, he leave? Or... Yeah, he had an argument with my mother and he just opened the door and I could, he looked at me and he said, I will never see you again. That, those were his words. And, and that came true. I never saw him again after that. And he was my grandpa. I mean, I he, he cooked for me. He made a swing for me. He was kind of like my dad because I never really had a dad. But after that, you know, there was really nobody else, just my mother and and, and us taking care of each other. And while well, my mom was doing the business of going to, we are about three hours away from the coast. So Guatemala City is about three hours away. So she would have to drive to the coast to buy the goods, you know, mostly it was oranges or cauliflowers. And she will bring him to the city. And that's where we will go to the markets or do, sell him from door to door. And try to make businesses like that so while she was gone i would have to take care of the kids hmm. oh while she was at the market i will have to take care of the kids so it was kind of like i was used to doing that you know i learned how to cook from a very young age and learn how to go to the market do the grocery shopping the cleaning the washing the doing what i had to do is again like i was telling you earlier it's part of a survival you know you have mm -hmm. to you may you have to make do so you can remain alive oh yeah was there running water? Uh, no, we we did not have running water, and um, and so we lived in many different places. So a lot mm. of the places where we had there were it was shacks. So mm. you know you just enough to have shelter over your head, but not running water. So that's where my I would make my sisters and my brother kind of do like a game. Let's see who brings the most water to the house. <laughs> so each one of them will have a bucket, and then we'll walk over to. Uh, the closest factory, you know, and you'll ask them for water and, you know, we'll bring factory. it back to our house. It, it, we lived, I mean, there were so many factories like rice factories or, you know, I don't know what, I don't even know what it was. You can just tell it was a gated place and there were people working in there, uh, but they were very nice to, um, to the people around town and they will give us water. But, yeah, you know, just enough for cooking, enough for, you know, drinking and stuff. 
Um, so that was something that something fun that my sisters and my brother do remember, you know, how we were fetching water back and forth. That's funny. I, I, I had that growing up too, but it wasn't a game. I hated it until now. I hate it. Well, you know what? After so many times that we had to do it, yes, it becomes dreadful. But, you know, there were little kids and the more kids we had holding water, the less trips I had to do. So you had exactly. to kind of make it fun so they could help. Um, but it was, it, I mean, we had to, we played, we we cooked together, we told stories, uh, we helped each other with schoolwork. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, I, I didn't, I was not living in a place where I suffer like bombs and, mm. you know, uh, there was no like gangs back then, like today, you know, I can't even go visit my country because I know they're around the corner, there could be a, a, a gangs and, and shootings or whatever else. I didn't have to fear any of that, you know? Mm. I would even go myself to those trips that my mother would do to go pick up oranges and come by myself because it was kind of safe back mm. then. I mean, we're talking 25 years ago. Yeah. So it was fun while we were there for sure. But at the same time, fun with, you know, you're combining that with, you never went to the doctor, you never went to the dentist, <laughs> you know, that we had, didn't have any money for that. It was a very poor kind of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned about dentists because I went to my dentist the other day and I said, you know, I grew up in the Philippines and I think I went maybe once. Yeah. Yeah. I don't what? even remember. <laughs> it's pitiful. It's, but at the same time, you know, you, you, we needed it because when I came here to the U.S. and I went to the dentist and the doctor, they wonder why have I not gone before, you know, and my <laughs> mouth was so bad that they had months and months of work to do because mm. of that. So, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's. So you mentioned you live in the U.S. now. How did you get to the U.S.? Who was who came first? Well, uh, my mother came first. Mm. And, you know, right at the when I was around 13 years old, my mother um, made the decision to come here in the, to the U.S. You know, we got to the point where things were getting very hard. She couldn't even, you know, sell those oranges that she wanted to sell and just we didn't have enough food for all of us just for the little kids and she just heard of the opportunity for her to come here to the U.S. and and work and make some money you know and really she didn't know how to how to clean how to do work she has always had her own business so she mm -hmm. didn't know what it was to take orders from anybody so she came here to the U.S. Of course, she came undocumented with false documentation. And when she left us back home, we were kind of all scattered out. She found different people for us to stay. So the plan was not for me to stay with the kids. We were all scattered out. But, you know, we started experiencing like physical and mental abuses in the places where we were we were staying not, not just me but my little sister and my mm -hmm. little brother and we couldn't just we couldn't take that you know yeah. not only we didn't have my mother but on top of that we were being abused for these people that were receiving money from the u.s no so that's when a very uh friendly neighbor offered his backyard and we built a shack and that's where my my sisters and my brother and I lived under the guardian of this person who decided to take That's a nice person. 
yeah, he was very nice, but at the same time, he was very interested in the money that my mother oh, was spending. He ended up stealing a lot of the money, you know, and it, it just, you know, he kept lying to my mother about what he was buying and he really wasn't buying, you know, I mean, so yes, oh, okay. it was nice that he gave us the place to stay, but it, he, he wasn't very honest when it came to the money. <laughs> so he wasn't really nice. Yeah, no, no, no. So that's when two years later, um, that's really all we could take two years of this nonsense of money transfers and us being without my mother. And, you know, my little brother was only three years old. He, at that early age, he doesn't know what's happening. You know, he could barely remember my mom when she, when, he, when she left. So he started calling me mom because mm. I was changing his diapers. I was feeding him and, and I couldn't just tell him not to call me mom. You know, he didn't yeah. have anybody else. So I was mom. And so we started noticing that it was time for my mother to come back. So the plan was really all the time for her to go back to Guatemala and use the money that she had saved to buy us a house. I mean, mm. once you have a shelter, when you own your own shelter, it's much easier to live in our countries because you're not paying for a place to live. You're just making money for food and clothing, whatever else. Mm -hmm. But in the end, someone just kind of put a bug in her ear. Why don't you bring the kids to the United States instead of you going back? And of course, at first it was kind of a dumb thought because we didn't have money. We didn't have the financial means to show to immigration that we were coming here in pleasure vacations. You know, <laughs> we, we just didn't have that. And so it was cheap or not cheaper, but much more convenient to pay a smuggler. Mm. And so my mother decided to hire a smuggler and a person. What do you mean who, smuggler? A smuggler is a person who receives an amount of money in order to cross you over borders and bring oh. you here undocumented. So they'll find either false documentation or they cross you over the river or, you know, through deserts or whatever. But they how, bring do you, you across how do you find country. a smuggler? Uh, I don't know how you find one. That's not a question I can answer you, but she came out with the opportunity. Someone Is had that the way he, she came to the U.S. as well? Or? Yes, she did. Mm -hmm. okay. She did. So she, she was given a fake passport, so she was able to get on a plane and show the passport. I guess it was very well made that she was able to walk through immigration with no problem. Mm. But she was here in the United States working undocumented because she didn't have the right paperwork for her to work. Mm. Yeah. So my little brother and my little sister's dad, he found out, of course, he had to find out because my mother needed his permission to oh. take the kids out of the country. Wait, sorry so for cutting we, you off. Where was this guy? Mom knew where he was, but he was just never part of the family, <laughs> part of the picture. I mean, all she, she couldn't take the kids out of the country. She couldn't even take me out of the country without getting my father's permission. So oh, okay. she had to find our fathers because we were all different dads. She had to find our father's permission uh, to for us to leave the country. Otherwise, it would have been considered you know, something wrong, kidnapping, uh, she would have gotten in trouble. Yeah, mm. but she had all of those their permissions. And when he found out that the kids were going to travel with a smuggler, he didn't like that idea. Yeah, no one likes that idea. <laughs> well, we didn't either, but we didn't <laughs> have a choice. Sure. 
Yeah, we didn't have a choice, really. That was really the only opportunity that many immigrants have to use as means to come to the U.S. because mm -hmm. they can't just go to immigration and ask for a visa. They don't have, they, you have to prove that you have money. You have to prove that you have, you know, uh, means and assets. And if they don't have that, how are they going to be granted permission? They won't. And so their dad brought them. He was able to get the paperwork for the kids. And in a matter of days, <laughs> the kids were here. Blink of an eye. So, so this guy, sorry, this guy is in Guatemala. Yeah. And then he just said, you know what, guys, I'm bringing it to U.S. Yeah. He has the, means, the financial. <laughs> yeah, he has the financial means to do that and more. But he was only going to do it for his two children with common sense. Those were his, you know, his kids' kids. Mm -hmm. He was not responsible for all five of us. So it was just for me and my two younger sisters that we had to endure the journey of the traveling with the smuggler. So it, it was, there was fear, of course, because you don't know the person who's going to come and pick you up. You know, you just know some random person is going to come and pick you up and you're just going to go with them, you know? And at the same time, you are hoping, you are placing your hope on these people who maybe I hope they know what they're doing and yeah. they are going to keep up with our promises. And yeah. so I grab my little sister's hand, you know, and we just get in the vehicle with just our essentials. Each one of us had a little backpack and whatever we could fit in Wait. there. Okay, Let's just slow it down because I'm really interested in this part of your story because how it works. So your mom, I guess, sent you a letter back then? Or was there a phone no, to tell you? Yes, there were phones, but it was just too expensive. So we used to communicate to, through letters. So, of course, there was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. There was yeah, nothing yeah. for us to, to talk. Um, and when, whenever we did talk about serious decisions like these, mm -hmm. then we would pay to talk to her over the phone. So we we had someone at church who had a phone in their home and for a good amount of money, of course, they would yeah. let us use their phone, but it was just only on situations like a letter cannot wait, you know, yeah. we have to talk. So that conversation occurred, of course, through phone. But um, yeah, that that's that's how we talked about it. So you, she called you up and say, hey, Astrid, this is what's gonna go down. There'll be a day. This guy's going to come and take you. Did you know the day or? That's it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we knew the date. We had to be prepared. Uh, we we just knew that um, the the plan was going to be to go with them. And eventually we're going to ride a plane. So it wasn't going to be like today, like people cross over deserts and, mm. you know, cross over the river. We knew we weren't going to do that. My mom had paid a good amount of money for them to create the fake passport enough to to go in a plane just mm -hmm. look the way she had done it and um yeah so yeah you so she, this guy came it was a single guy there's no one there's only one person no it was the mediator so there's a person i guess who is in charge of making this connection so not the actual smuggler the actual mm. smuggler it's at home you know counting money while the mediator is the person who does all the arrangements mm -hmm. okay. and at least that's the way it worked for us so this person 
was on the phone with mom, made the decision, you know, made the connections, received the money to pay the smuggler. And then she was the one who picked us up. And she oh, is a woman. Is a woman. Okay. And she was to take us to the smuggler's home. So mm. it was a woman who picked that picked us up and then she drove us to I think we spent on her house maybe two, three days. Okay. And then from there we went over to the smuggler where the process began to make the passport, take the pictures and and then the waiting began because How were we you were, feeling at that moment? We're really scared. I mean, I'm not gonna deny it. You know, we were really scared because you they always told us to keep our things in the bag because <sighs> you know, we would have to go to another hotel or another house or another place. So we were always on the go. Oh, and yeah. Is it like any moment, people. any moment you're yeah. moving? And not, not, not really. That we just, and yeah, it could be like today you're sleeping here, tomorrow you're going to sleep somewhere else, you know? So we ha always had to keep our bags mm. packed up and there were always other people. I mean, I remember we were picked up in November, December came, Christmas came around And we celebrated Christmas with all the people who had also paid. <laughs> so we were all making, you know, tamales and a fiesta. And we were celebrating Christmas. Everybody waiting for the day that tomorrow, okay. you know, would be the day to, that you would go. So we only had each other to kind of hope and talk. And have you heard anything? When are you leaving? Where are you coming from? You know, you would make friends like that. And, and it was just. And a matter of holding hands every night and just hoping that you're going to go to sleep and hopefully tomorrow you're going to see the daylight, you know? You're strong. You're strong. Yeah, there's really no other option. You're either that or you stay behind and keep suffering in poverty. You know, you know mm -hmm. that the opportunities in the U.S. are much, much better. So you mm -hmm. kind of give everything you have. And hope is really a lot more than you think, than strength, you know? So maybe I wasn't that strong as you think. You know, there were many th nights where I cried, where I wanted to call my mom and say, never mind, I'm just going to stay here. But I couldn't do that. She couldn't talk. She couldn't call us. We couldn't call her. So for two months, she knew nothing. She knew nothing about us. Once we were picked up that November 1993, She lost us. She had no for idea. For two what. months. For two months. She no connection. Anything, no connection. We couldn't call her because because we couldn't tell her where we were. Mm. Those were places that was holding people who were trying to travel undocumented. Yeah. So you can't really call and say, hey, I'm in so-and-so's house. <laughs> so for two months, it was very, very hard Jesus. not to tell her. And there was a lot of crying. There was a lot of praying. There was a lot of hoping. And. Until, until finally we we spent a few days in Mexico City and that's mm. where they finally made the decision that okay. we're going to go from Mexico City to the U.S. Did you take the plane to Mexico? No. We, there was, we, we rode trains, buses. We made it through Mexico all the way to Mexico City using different transportations. <laughs> I remember we, even horses. No kidding. There were some towns that we went by and we had to ride horses. So, you know, transportation was different all throughout until we made it to Mexico City. From mm. Mexico City is where we were to take the plane to the uh, U.S. Was there the same person taking care of you the whole time or different people? No, the same person. Uh. The same person. And this is the person I, I, 
I don't know. Back then, it looked like that my sisters and I kind of decided that it was the smuggler's wife, the person who was taking us from place to place. Now, before we got in a plane with the actual smuggler, mm. they took us to his house to meet him. And we had to practice. You're going to call him dad. This is your dad. If they ask you, you are this age. They had cut my hair like really short to make me look like at, I think 12 years old. And we had to practice, you know, that I was his daughter and we were just coming here to visit. And, you know, so I, we met him before that morning that we got on the plane. So at least we knew what he looked like. So there was no practice? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excuse my French, but I'll be shitting bricks. Yeah, it, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. So the smuggler says, "Hey, let's go. We're gonna be on the plane. We're gonna meet mom. Let's go now." Yeah, that's when she gets the phone call. So the night that we were told uh, that was January, we it was January twenty third when we arrived. So on the twenty second, we get told tomorrow you put on your best dress. You get you get on a plane, and that's when my mother gets the phone call. Tomorrow at this and that time, they're going to be dropped off at the airport. So someone mm. needs to be there to get them. So that's finally when she heard from us, you know, after after two months. Speaking of the best dress, is it the picture that you have it on your blog when you had like these beautiful jackets? Yeah. Is that the yes. day? So we all, we all of us bought whatever outfit we want to wear. Well, my sisters bought some princess dress, they call it. And I had this long skirt that I have found. It was, I, I thought it was really pretty, but we all had matching, um, I jackets, love those jackets. jackets. We, we were just fascinated with those jackets. You know, we were loving the culture, loving, uh, the Mexican people. And we were just about, you know, enjoying the different environment of the different country because you know we were from Guatemala Mexico's really beautiful and it's different and you know the food was different and the climate was different so it we took advantage of those jackets and we was like we're, we're gonna bring those to the U.S. Do you still have them? No not at all. Oh. <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> They're beautiful so anyway so you got on the plane first of all How did you feel getting on the plane? Were you afraid? We were excited. You know, finally, you know, we were getting on a plane and we were going to be reunited with my mother, who we knew was going to be at the airport waiting on us. And mm. Or if it wasn't her or somebody that she, she was going to send to pick us up. <laughs> Some smuggler. Yeah, but at the same time, we were scared because we looked at those passports and we knew that, you know, that wasn't us. It was different names and different. The picture was us. Like they made us look so different, but the information was different. And do you remember your name? Scared. No, no, you don't. I, I should. You know, I, I didn't even I don't think they gave us those passport bags when we got busted because we get busted at the airport. Oh, you did? oh my God. So. The documentation must have been done so poorly that as soon as we show our passports to the immigration agent, they looked at us and you could just tell that they knew, nah, this is not working for them. And, you know, I remember shaking. I mean, my hand was shaking because yeah. I knew that documentation was false. I knew that we were doing something wrong. You know, you know what's right and what's wrong. And mm -hmm. And, and 
we really knew that we didn't have another choice. And so they pulled us over into an immigration room and that's when the questions began through a translator. What are you doing here? Who is really this guy? What do you want here? You need to go back to your country. And, you know, just accusations like that. And they started taking our fingerprints and we knew it was over when we turned around and we see the smuggler being dragged out with handcuffs. Even his feet were handcuffed. Like he couldn't even walk. And we were like, oh, crap, we are doomed. Like we knew oh, we no. were done. And we started crying. Please don't send us back. I mean, I'm just 15. My sisters are young. We, don't, we, we were not lying when we said there was nobody else in Guatemala mm. for us. It's just us. We need to be here with my mother. Oh, then go get your mother or let's give me your mom's number so she can go with you. And of course, we weren't going to do that. You know, we, I wasn't going to tell them where my mom was. She was undocumented. They would have gone and picked her up. But you knew her number? I don't remember. I don't mm. think I did because otherwise I probably would have called her when we That's were out and about. Yeah. I don't think I had her number. It was always that mediator, that person who 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 we were living, you know, in her his shack, that person who would making those phone calls. So I don't think I ever had her any documentation. Nothing. Yeah. Because you would have gave that number, I'm pretty sure. I probably would have because I was scared. I wanted yeah. my mother. We were all crying. I mean, my sisters were crying. And, you know, especially when they start doing the fingerprints and the pictures and the word deportation and we're going back. And what are we going to do? We had already told the guy that they can tear the shack down because we were gone. We, were, we had been gone for two months. For all I know, that shack wasn't there anymore, you know? Yeah. And so... It, it was an all-day thing. We arrived in the early morning on that 23rd. It was already nighttime by the time two ladies walk in that same room and yelling and talking at the immigration agents. Well, those two ladies ended up being one was my grandmother, so mm. my mother's mom. She lives here in the United States. She's an American citizen. And her sister, so both of them were there. They brought documentation to prove that she was my grandmother and that she was financially capable to claim us mm. and she made herself responsible and signed documentation to be able to keep us here in the united states so that's wow. how i was able to stay here documented you know my green card was issued my Whoa. work permit was issued so everything was done because of that but she um had never, I mean, she had never been, we knew about her, but she had never been like part of my family per se. We knew she was here. We knew she lived here with other families. We just never thought that she was going to do what she did. That's which nice. It's one of the greatest things that she has done for us. And we were all able to obtain our documentation and be able to go to school, be able to live a peaceful life, you know. They let you in? Is that okay? Like before? That's amazing. 25 years ago. I mean, we're talking 25 years ago. Yes. If that would have happened today, no, that would have never been allowed. Okay. Yeah. So these two angels came, saved you, and brought you. Where are you guys staying after that? Like, is there an apartment? Oh, I mean, yeah, because she had made herself um, responsible for us, we had to stay in her house. So she has mm. a house in New York City and 
we she gave us her basement and you know it's big enough for us to live there and hey, you live we, in a shack we were, we, uh, yeah it, <laughs> that basement was a mansion palacio yes <laughs> so we we went and met with mom we cried we reunited we talked and oh. we were taken straight to that uh, basement and that's where my life began here in the united states man I cannot imagine how your mom felt and you felt that night. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it, it was unbelievable, you know. My my little brother and my sister had already been here. They celebrated Christmas here with her. Bastards. They had already been here and you know, it was nice to see that they had already caught up with emotions yeah, and stuff. Just... They, they were already dressed in, you know, American outfits and stuff. I mean, they were already Uh, acculturated <laughs> no matter a month uh, but it was just wonderful that we were finally you know together and being mm -hmm. able to talk and you know the, the job of taking care of the siblings continued because my mother is a single mother you know and she has to work she has to be out of the house for several hours and it was my job to continue taking care of the siblings here but it was different mm. you know now we had her here with us and Even though she was working 16, 17 hours, we knew she was going to come home. Yeah. And it was just that different. Uh -huh. I, I don't know if you felt this way, but I remember when I landed in Canada, I instantly knew and I felt that life is better. Oh, absolutely. Like, no kidding. You know, like it's just, it, like big weight is just lifted off. I'm like, I think I'm okay now. I think yeah. I can breathe now. Yes. Yeah. You know, so. Now that you have arrived in the land of milk and honey, as they say, how <laughs> did you feel then? And what were your expectations? I mean, I had always wanted to go to school. I mean, I mm. knew that I wanted to be a teacher ever since I was young. So I knew that going to school and like getting a high school diploma was going to be an opportunity to go to college. I mean, I knew that college is a career. I wanted to have a profession. I wanted to have a career. I always mm -hmm. wanted to have that. I just knew that the opportunities were limited living in Guatemala, but the aspirations were always there. It's just finally I was in a country where these dreams could be possible. You know? <laughs> so uh, the last year that I completed in Guatemala was the sixth grade. So from the sixth grade in Guatemala, I was enrolled here in high school in the ninth grade. So I kind of missed <laughs> six years of, of schooling because I couldn't go to school every day. So I would have been, you know, higher uh, than a sixth grade. You have to I, take missed, care of the girls. I missed, yeah, a lot of years, you know, teachers wouldn't pass me because I was not attending enough or I wasn't doing the assignments or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I was held several times and, you know, six, six grade was the most I accomplished but I was very smart I mean I knew how to do business I knew how to do public speaking I have done that you know I mm. I, 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 I was so responsible like taking care of my brothers and sisters I was responsible taking you know holding a household together I mean that in itself are all the skills that you need to be successful in a school even if you don't speak the language you know I mm -hmm. didn't speak English English is a luxury in our countries for those who go to private school. You know, I, I barely made it to public school, you know, nonetheless. <laughs> so, okay, it was really the only word I knew. And I started, you know, facing 
very difficult circumstances at school because of language, because of culture, because of, you know, so many things, you know, they knew that it was a low socioeconomic status and ESL just was such a low stigma that they give you, Mm -hmm. that you start feeling um, subconscious and you start feeling bad and you start feeling like you're dumb and, you know, all the richness and the glorious that you feel like when you come here kind of fades away Mm. and they make you feel like that in schools. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine like learning the language and then learning, I don't know, history and other things in the other language too. It's very hard. Yeah, it's very hard. Absolutely. And I I listened to your podcast, by the way. Oh. Amazing podcast. Hey, thank you. Great job. Great, great job. And you mentioned that uh, you failed in high school. Can you tell the story? Yeah. So after noticing that I was being made fun of or I was not participating in class because I didn't speak English, I started trying really hard to make sure that I learned the language. I mean, if that's what it takes for me to do good in school and to graduate is to learn the language so I can get my credit, my credits. And I started doing that. I mean, I, I worked my butt off that. I remember it was just countless hours of just learning and translating everything. And so it was three in the morning. My mother's my witness. You know, I was in the kitchen table with different dictionaries and thesaurus and translating everything I had copied from the teacher's board so I can understand what was happening. And then I will write in Spanish my responses and then translate it to English <laughs> so I can submit it to the teacher. I There was no Google. Golly, I tell my students today, if you would only lived 20 years ago, this Google thing with one fingertip that translates oh everything is glorious. Yeah. No, with me, it was not bad. And I did it. In about a year and a half, I acquired enough language to place out of the English program. So I started taking classes, you know, like math and sciences and, you know, histories. And I was be I was understanding the content that was acquiring the credits for graduation. I was ready. I mean, they took my picture with cap and gown, 42 mm. credits. I was going to graduate. I was done. You're feeling good. Yeah, I was really, I mean, I consider myself real smart. I thought I did really good. You know, if, <laughs> if for you to get the credits, that means you pass the class. And for you to pass the class is because you have to do the work. Mm-hmm. So obviously I was doing something right. <laughs> but and then at the end of the year, every state administers an end of year regents exam. It's kind of like a summary of everything you have learned in that content. So I passed, you know, the reading and the writing and everything else, except the American history. Obviously, I have not understood enough, I guess, when I took the classes that I didn't pass the test. So I took it in English, I took it in Spanish, and I did not pass the test. And without being able to pass this test, it didn't matter how many credits I had, they were not going to give me my diploma one subject so, one subject it wasn't even the class i failed it was the test and <sighs> so i didn't get kicked out of school but i was just told eh, you already have all of your credits just come back next year to take the test and if you pass we'll give you the diploma i'm like what so i mean i didn't need to be in school anymore i had passed everything 
but I didn't have the strength to go back to just take the test. You know, I was mm-hmm. very discouraged. I feel like the school system failed me because as a newcomer, as an immigrant who had given it all, I had risked my own personal, you know, my language, my heritage, my culture. I had put all of that on hold to acculturate, to become who they wanted me to become, that successful student Mm. that schools aspire to have, you know? I've done that. But just because of one test, I was just receiving a tap on the shoulder. And, of course, and I was very discouraged. I was very... um, deflated <laughs> i didn't want to do anything else i was i was sad i got into a depression and i didn't have the confidence to look for other jobs you know i, I had already started working a part-time at a supermarket mm. so i just asked for a full time and i began working as a cashier because really that's all i could do just scanning groceries without having to i mean did, did you talk to your mom about it though Not really. I think back then she only thought, okay, you know, you don't have any classes anymore. You're done. I I don't Mm. know. I just feel like she wasn't in the mind to understand what was happening. You know, it wasn't until my sis, my uh, little sister's high school graduation that she realized what it takes to graduate, how many credits (laughs) you need. It, it took about three of us to go through high school for her to finally realize. And I mean, and I don't blame her. You mean, you mm. have this single parent who has to work countless hours to bring bread to the table for five children. And, I, you know, I, I'm not who am I to say you should have mom because no. she did what she had to do for me. And my job was to take care of my studies. And that's what I tell a lot of my students today. You know, mm. if your parents are busy working, they're taking care of the children, they're taking care of the house, household, you are old enough to embrace your education and make sure you do it for them. Mm-hmm. And you find out your credits, that you find out what it takes to graduate so you can honor the sacrifices that your parents are doing for you. Yeah, you're correct. So you were scanning groceries. There's no plan just to scan groceries for the rest of your life kind of deal? For the rest of my life because yeah, I was getting good at it. You know, <laughs> I was getting I was getting good. I knew all the supermarket language. I knew all the groceries. I knew everything related to grocery stores. So mm. I felt like I was where I belong. But at the same time, you know, when you have a burning sensation in your gut about making a difference and when you mm. know and when you, when you begin to understand and embrace your journey and your experiences as to where you are and what it took to get there, that's when you start realizing that there's more. Mm-hmm. So it took a lot for me to, to be able to understand that what I had experienced in Guatemala, what I had experienced with the smuggler, what I had experienced in school, all of that was important. And I was capable for more. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started thinking about working in a school system. Mm-hmm. And really, all I wanted to do was say, I work at the school, but I apply as a cleaning crew. I was going to start cleaning. 
I was this in New York or no, Carolina? No, I moved here to the Carolinas because after I dropped out of school, I get pregnant. So I come here to the Carolinas trying to find a new way of living, try to make it better for my my coming my son. And and so I moved here. This is where mm. I find out about, you know, oh, but you if you want a better job, you have to have a high school diploma. So that's when I found out about the GED. So here mm. in the United States, there is a equivalence. I mean, it's not the same, but it's a document that allows you to go to college, at least a community college. So I nobody ever told me that in New York. Otherwise, I probably would have done it, you know, years <laughs> before. So here in the Carolinas is where somebody mentioned that. And I go and I get my GED. And with that GED, I was I had a little more confidence to apply at the school mm. system. I figure, well, if they hire me for cleaning or if they hire me for, you know, serving food, I'll be good. That's all I need. Just get into <laughs> the school. But little did I know that a principal was looking at my application and he wanted to interview me for a teacher's assistant. He had a first grade teacher who needed an assistant and he wanted me to come in for an interview. Of course, I started laughing. My English, of course, I had only been here in the U.S. five years. So it wasn't like very strong. Mm-hmm. And so the, the principal leaves the message that he wants to interview me for teacher assistant. And I play that message. I'm not kidding you. Like 20 times. Is he saying teacher like a teacher assistant, like helping <laughs> teacher, like working in a class? Like, so I wait for my husband. I had already met my husband and, and you know, I wait for my husband to come home. And he's American, of course. He's not going to have trouble understanding this message. <laughs> I said, listen, I listen to this person. Is he saying what I'm thinking he's saying? And he goes, yeah. It's an interview for a teacher. I was like, okay, so I'm not going crazy. I'm not misunderstanding. Okay. So, you know, I showed up to the to the interview but with, with very little hope because Why? I had no background. I had to me, I I was nothing. I was a loser. I was someone who had accomplished nothing. I had someone who had very little English. I had someone who didn't finish high school. I had someone who was, you know, expect, well, no, by then, by the time I applied, I had already had my baby. I was like, you know, I have a baby. I just married and I think. I I felt like I didn't have anything to give. Why me? And that's what I asked. I said, just up front, you know, just so you know. <laughs> but and then the teacher who needed the assistant looks at me and she says, Emily, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. My story. I mean, my story, my story begins 1978 in Guatemala. And, you know, that's my, do you want to hear that? I got a story for you. And I began telling him the exact same thing that I share with you. And I mean, their mouths just open and they're like, what? You did what? I'm like, yeah, yeah. What's, what's wrong with that? I mean, to me, it was just, that's just my life. But they made me realize the value on that journey. Mm-hmm. I had not experienced until that moment how powerful my story is, how amazing it is for others to hear that so they were impacted just by hearing my story they hire me they hire me that you are the person who I need to be working for me and I'm like okay and I started working you know with seven years old kids and 
And she is the one who took me under her wing and she helped me become the teacher. So I, I worked with her for eight years in that classroom. Mm, okay. Like I said, I read your blog a little bit. Can you tell the broken cash story? I love the story. The reason why she hired me? Yes, I love the story. <laughs> Definitely the reason she hired me is because she loved my story. But there was somebody else who had interviewed and she had a lot of credentials. Mm. So she was, Angie was deciding who do I, who do I want? Like who do I, do I want Emily with this wonderful story? Mm -hmm. Or do I want this person who has all these credentials as a teacher? So she was in the process of deciding she had the weekend to mm -hmm. decide. And, but you know, I, I was still working. I was a cashier, but it was a place called Bass Pro Shops and they mm -hmm. sell fishing lures and boat accessories and her husband needed an accessory. And so they both go to Bass Pro Shops. Back then, of course, I wasn't just a regular cashier. I was in charge of cashiers. So they page me on the radio and they say, Emily, we need help because my register just got stuck. And so here am I coming to help and rescue this cashier whose register was stuck. And when I turn around, the customer who was waiting at that stuck register was Angie, the teacher who had interviewed me. And we looked at each other. Oh, my God. Hi. How are you? <laughs> And the husband's like, hello, register. We forgot about the register. And she was just so happy to see me. I was happy to see her because we had shared a moment, you know, mm -hmm. when we talked mm -hmm. about my story. It was a very special moment. And I guess she walked out of there and she just picked up the phone and called the principal and say, that's it. Emily Francis it is. And that's how my journey started in the educational system. I love the story. I love it. Divine intervention. Yeah, it's like sure. God's like, what's up? I'm no going to hook kidding. you up. No kidding. I, yeah. His pulls drinks for me a lot. That's awesome. So yeah. how was your experience being an assistant teacher? Well, with her, it was wonderful because she was very trustful. She would be like, okay, do whatever you want to do, you know, so I will grab kids, especially I will gravitate toward kids who have struggles reading, mm. kids who didn't know how to read or write. So I just felt like I was compelled to help them. And little did I know that later that was the profession that I would choose is not just to be a teacher, but a teacher of struggling learners and language learners. So uh, that room, her classroom was definitely a place for me to to practice and become uh, the best that I could become because I came out of her classroom with a lot of good things under my wing. And while you're being assistant teacher, you were going to school to be a teacher as well? Yes, it took me several years. So as a teacher assistant, I was required to be a bus driver. So from five, <laughs> yes. So from five thirty in the morning to eight, I would drive a bus. Like I would pick up the kids, take him to school. From eight to three, I was a teacher assistant. From three thirty to five, I was a bus driver taking the kids back home. <laughs> and I will meet my mom halfway in the highway to give her my son because he was going to school with me. She will take my son and I will run on to the community college. So it took wow. me three years to get my associate's degree. It took me four years to get my bachelor's and two more to get my master's. So it took me really 12 years to finish my career because I was working at the same time. 
you're a beast. <laughs> oh my God, three years like that? Everything is possible for sure. Well, I don't know about that. For you, yes, you're, you're an amazing person. Oh my goodness. I'll be like, enough of this. I'm just going to do something else over there. No, I, you know, I knew within my gut that I was going to be a really good teacher. Like, yeah. I, I knew, I, I, I knew that I had a desire to make a difference. And mm. it didn't matter what was going to take. Like, I almost dropped out of college because... Mm. There was a test that I didn't pass. I took it six times. So the university, the university has a test called Praxis. Okay. And it's kind of like a summary of the entire high school. So you take this test and this test will admit the student to the Department of Education to take the courses to be the teacher. Well, I took it six times and I never passed. So I almost really dropped out of um, college. But I found another way around it through a guidance counselor who really knew what he was doing and he helped me out. And he's the one who really helped me make the decision to become an ESL teacher because I wanted to be an elementary teacher, elementary school teacher. But he's the one that guided me to realizing that I could be a teacher who helps students who are struggling with the same thing that I did. Because even in college, I was struggling with my English and you know, academic English is very different from communication English. Mm-hmm. And so my levels were not yet there to be able to be as proficient as I should have been in college. And it was very hard. Yeah. And then you graduated, you became a teacher. Yeah. And what does room 167 in Irvine Elementary School means to you? Oh, my very first room. So I get hired, of course, it was the same district that I started as a teacher assistant. And, you know, the principal who hired me walks in room 167 and he says, Miss Francis, this is your classroom. You know, it for me, it wasn't like any other classroom. It was my, it was Mrs. Francis's classroom. Hmm. It was the place where I knew I was going to pour my heart and my soul in and I promised it. I stood in the middle of the room. I even asked the principal to leave me alone a few minutes and I wanted to soak it in. So I looked around and the walls were bare and I just, I could imagine me working with kids and putting things on the wall. And it was just an opportunity that I had been working for for a long time. That's amazing. Yeah. I I love that. I think we're getting there, but... I just want to talk one more topic. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. About your podcast. <laughs> I went deep dive on that thing. I love it. I love how you emotional you were. You almost got me crying. No way. Babe, I failed. You should have been almost. crying. <laughs> no, I'm a man. I have to push it down, you know? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I was compelled to, uh, first I was compelled to write it. And really, I wasn't going to make it public because even though I had realized that my story had potential, that my story was important to share, when you experience things like that, that family separation and everything that I experienced you relive all of those experiences and some of them are 
are, you know, they hurt and, and writing it or telling it, it's, it's hard. Mm. So I wrote it just for the heck of it. I just, it just felt compelled to type it in. And I shared it with one of my friends, an mm. author friend. She read it and she goes, Emily, make this public. Like right <laughs> now, you need to share this right now. She made her students read it. The students were crying. The students were sending me videos Oh my gosh, I love your stories just like mine. And it just blew from there. You know, like everybody was wanting to hear my story and I started sharing it wide and in different places and different platforms. And then I thought, you know, podcast is something I haven't done. You know, I make my students work with the listening skills to develop mm. English. And I'm always looking for podcasts that can help my students be able to hear something and understand. And so I was like, you know, let me just get out of my comfort zone a little bit and create a podcast. So I started it. I kind of put it on hold, but at least I got the foundation there, which is my journey. Eventually, I'm going to start adding students' stories. So that's my goal, mm. to add students' stories to my podcast. Yeah. For everyone that's listening, you got to check it out. It's amazing. It's like an audiobook. It should be an audiobook, to be honest. Oh, never thought about that. You didn't think of that? A great idea. I swear to God, when I was listening, like, this needs to be an audiobook. Well, I'm writing a book, so maybe my oh, book sweet. turns into audio, so we'll see. <laughs> That's um, Yeah, I can't wait to read that or listen to it. Thank you. Thank That's you. That's amazing. But do you want to mention the name of the podcast? Oh, my goodness. Hang on, because I titled it... Of course, you had to. I can say it. I remember yeah, the name. Yeah, go for it. Go for it's it. Our stories matter. Oh, look at that! It's like a year ago that I made it. You know it more than I do. Okay. <laughs> well, I told you I listened it twice. <laughs> I love oh it. My I'm glad you do. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, no, thank you for recording it. It's just, I mean, I love it. The way yeah. you did it, like, man, this needs to be an audiobook. Oh, nice! Thank you yeah. so much. But yeah, we're there. But before we close out, do you have any last remarks or any advice? Well, just like you said in the podcast name, you know, stories matter. And I think that telling our stories not only helps us as individuals who had experienced, you know, different journeys, but it also impacts others. So if you're listening and you think, oh, my story is just a story, just think of your story more so as a journey is a combination of experiences that make you who you are. So I used to think of my story as something important until I started realizing that my journey and those experiences make me who I am. And so when we learn to see our journeys that way, we can see the value in sharing it to others. Mm, wise word from a wise woman. Astrid, Thank you so much for coming, and I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye. Again, Astrid, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Doliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.